Mateus, let's take a minute to talk about Surfshark VPN. Oh, yeah? What do you have to say about that? So for the first time in a long time, I use public Wi-Fi. And I'll tell you what, I was glad that I had Surfshark VPN loaded on the laptop. As soon as I logged into the Wi-Fi, I kept getting a code saying, you know, this is unstable. Do you, do you accept the risks? Um, and I was like, yeah, I do. Triggered Surfshark VPN. And I, I knew I was safe. I knew that nobody could access my, my data. And it really came in handy. Yeah, no, that's one of the good things about Surfshark's VPN. You can be on a public Wi-Fi anywhere. You can be sitting at a cafe. You can be on a train to London, as uh, was the case for you, my friend. And you will be protected from anybody trying to get into your personal stuff on your computer. And I definitely don't want people getting into my personal stuff. <laughs> i'm sure many of our listeners don't either so if you want to get surfshark vpn just head over to surfshark.deals forward slash nmp and enter the promo code nmp and you're going to get a massive 83 percent off and an extra three months free yeah so that's surfshark.deals slash nmp and enter the promo code NMP for 83% off and three extra months for free. I mean, three extra months and 83% off is how can you not go and check this out for that? It's like, kind of how deal? are these guys even making money, man? I, I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, so, yeah, head over to surfshark.deals forward slash NMP, use the promo code NMP, get 83% off and three extra months. Now, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of Kuhne Horns Verdin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everybody. We are joined this time by Professor Marcin Carver of the University of York. Uh, you may know him from such uh, magnanimous excavations as the Sutton Hoo burial and also Port Mahomac in Scotland. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carver. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm sorry to be uh, awkward and ask for this time, because uh, I know it's not your <laughs> usual time. But anyway, uh, I'm, thank you for coming. Oh, it's, it's fine. Don't worry. We're, there's only certain guests that we're happy to move around for, and you're one of them. So <laughs> okay, <fine. laughs> no, I mean, thank you for joining us again. It's the second time time you've kind of appeared on the show and um, for anybody who hasn't already listened to the Sutton Who episode please go back and listen to that it is it's a really it's one of my favorite episodes um because I think you just like like you said before we started you just go off and talk and I can just sit and listen to, to you speak for as long as we need to so it's uh it's a really fun episode for me should we get into Port Mahomic um we're gonna go north of the border I like I was just saying before the show that my first ever hearing of Paul Mamluk was from the Viking Britain book with Thomas Williams, I think was the author. Um, and there was just a little bit in there about how there was a Viking raid on the on the monastery. But I, I your name popped up, and obviously we did the Sun Who episode, and I was like, okay, we need to we need to delve deeper into this. I think. Okay. 
So, I mean, for me, I think if we start at what the monastery was, I guess, because it was it was a Pictish monastery. Yeah, it right? was. I mean, I, I, perhaps I could start a bit a bit earlier than that because after Sutton Hoo, I'd um, uh, at Sutton Hoo, I'd explored the origins of one of these kingdoms, of which uh, there are quite a few in Britain. Um, people know about the English ones because they call things like uh, Wessex and Mercia and Northumbria and East Anglia and so on. Uh, but the one, as soon as you get north of the border, of course, wasn't a border then. But if you if you go up to the end of the island, the north end, um, you get the Picts on the right hand side. Uh, um, that is to say, the uh, east, and you get the Scots on the left hand side. That's to say, the west. Mm -hmm. So the Scots are receiving um, immigration from Ireland, just as the uh, British in the south are receiving immigration from from England, and so it it needs a sort of balancing up. You see what I mean? I, I think everyone always talks about the Anglo-Saxons, but they don't really talk about the British, and they're super interesting, and also uh, in many ways in advance of the um, early English in their uh, their politics, if I can put it that way. But anyway, we discovered some really interesting things about. Uh, the way that Britain works by going north. And uh, I, I was born in Scotland, so it was a, a long ambition to try to get back there. So, because I left, um, I left Glasgow when I was about one, and uh, and uh, had to go, had to go. I was brought up abroad after that, and then um, school and you know everything. Then I was <laughs> in the army, so it was lovely to go back to Scotland and. Uh, uh, it, it was um, just chance, as, as it often is. I, 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 there's very few things I've done in archaeology that, that haven't been just good luck, really, rather than good organisation. Um, this was um, a telephone call came down from um, the, the, the northeast. Well, sort of just the northeast town is Inverness, and above it you get Tane. And uh, there was somebody living near Tane just just uh, rang me up and said, um, uh, "I just met your aunt uh, after crashing my car because because I um, it was near her house." <laughs> so I went, oh, wow. we got talking, and I said, uh, "This is this is uh, Caroline Shepherd Barron." She was called. She said, "I said uh, I'm looking for an archaeologist. I don't suppose you know one." They said, "Oh yeah, we know. We've got a relative who's an archaeologist." So. She said, "Oh well, uh, give me the telephone number. I'll ring him up." So, I mean, what are the chances of? I mean, maybe if he was like a, a plumber or or an electrician, something like that. But I feel like an archaeologist is a very niche thing to just stumble upon. But anyway, uh, it was just at the same time as I was looking for a chance to go north after Sutton Hoo to look at the right the other end of the country to see how their kingdom was forming. And also when they were converted to Christianity and, and what that meant to them. Because these are the sort of big moments that happened in the 6th, 7th, 8th century. And uh, so she rang up and said, um, I've got a church, which I, I can't get a grant for my church to, to repair it. And um, I, I've asked the various government bodies and so on. And they said, oh, my church wasn't interesting enough. I said, oh, <laughs> I'm sure it's really interesting. So she said to them, what, what, what can I do about this? They said, oh, well, 
I should find an archaeologist. I mean, they'll say anything, you know, if you give them enough money. (laughs) (laughs) So so, so she rang me up and said, come and have a look. So I did. So your job was to make the church more interesting. Well, I I mean, I didn't take that as my brief, frankly. I, I (laughs) I was looking for somewhere where there was enough strata, really, enough chances of a story, because mm-hmm. if it's just a church, it's a church, okay, it's founded and then it's occupied and so on, but I had to see whether there was enough um, uh, archaeological strata, enough layers, it, time has to pass, otherwise we don't get a story, so I went up there and she showed me around and I looked at the site and it was very beautiful, uh, it's on a peninsula, so the peninsula sticks out between the Murray Firth, the Cromarty Firth. And Mm -hmm. um, on the west side, there's a beautiful curving beach. So I thought, hmm, curving beach, that sounds like where somebody lands and uh, uh, it's been there for a long time. So that's probably uh, a place that's occupied. And then um, it, uh, I read about the church that it, people had been up there in the 18th century and the 19th century and found bits of carved stone and the bits of carved stone were were put in the church and um, they stayed there until an antiquary arrived in 1906 and found them mm-hmm. and then they got noted and they got published and so on so I, I looked those up and I thought well that's interesting these are really very smart pieces of carving and one of them or uniquely in Pickland had a Latin inscription on it. So, mm. you know, it looks like, hey, this is interesting. This is, you don't get Latin inscriptions um, uh, unless it's a monastery and therefore it could be a monastery. And there were no monasteries in Pickland at this time. Uh, something in Adam's Life of Columbus said that the Picts had, had monasteries, but no one had ever managed to find one. So I thought, well, this looks pretty interesting. And then standing on the hill looking down to the church and beyond it to the Cromarty Firth. The Firth um, goes across to Dunrobin Castle mm-hmm. and um, it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful place. Not very well, po- not densely populated. Good farmland, really good mm-hmm. farmland. So the Picts are there um, in, in some of the best land in Scotland and they're going to be there. They're documented as being there. Uh, between round about the third century AD and the ninth century, when they get uh, they get whopped by the Vikings and then by the Scots in that order, so yeah. there was just this little window and it's and it seemed to be opening at this place, Port Mahomac. So Port Mahomac is the port of Saint Coleman, and there are lots of Colemans in the in the lives of the saints, but this this was a, a almost certainly the one that was at the Synod of Whitby. So an imp- important character went off to Ireland after that. So all that was very exciting. And uh, I went and saw some more picture sculpture. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they, it's a very exciting kind of carving. Uh, the Christian ones have a cross on one side, sure. But before they're Christians, they just have symbols. And these symbols mm-hmm. are out of this world. There's, there's a, there's a there's a thing that's sort of called the swimming elephant uh, because it's got a sort of long trunk and it actually a dolphin, I think is probably what it is. And oh, they've got wow. salmon, stags, cattle, mm-hmm. 
carves, all those things carved on it. And, uh, and, and these symbols are thought to be a way of spelling somebody's name. Mm -hmm. um, these little and these stones stand at the edge of somebody's land. So the picts don't have the writing, but they have a symbolic uh, method of saying uh, this is the land of so-and-so. Uh, forgive me if this is a bit of a diversion, but um, do, do, we, do we know where the name Picts come from and, and whether these people that we call Picts actually would have used that about themselves? I remember the word from Isidore of Sevilla. He is writing in the 700s and, and claims that, that they're called Picts because they tattoo, right? So that's the, the old trope of, of tattooing that is attached to them, which, I mean, we, is possible, but we don't know if they were doing that. Um, but how, how long is that the tradition of the name, so to speak? And, and, and is it ever one that they actually use themselves, if, if we can even say anything about that? <laughs> I think I think they I think we can. Um, like a lot of things in that period, uh, they don't get written down until the Romans come, and then the Romans write down the names of the people they're busy conquering and mm -hmm. give them a nickname. Uh, so the the Saxons just means a kind of long knife. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Vikings is another is another nickname. I mean, it's, it's like bikers or something. They don't. It's not mm -hmm. actually refer to a particular group with a particular activity mm -hmm. and the picks were the picty the painted ones because they uh, as you say they tattooed themselves and i think we're pretty sure that did actually happen mm -hmm. and then sometimes happens um a, a group of people mainly tribal they find themselves and, and they find their own identity and they find their own kingdom really in, in you know within the the eighth century uh, particularly when they are converted to Christianity, which uh, we now know the Picts were too in the 8th century. So they become literate too. And they don't mind what they, they don't mind me called Picty then. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of like a bit of a trope, a bit of a bit of a flag to wave. So I think they did refer to, in the later period, I think they did, they did know that they were called the Picts. And they were called the Picts by... Um, by Bede as well. Okay, he was a pretty classical guy, but all the same, you know, they by that time they they knew each other, and they're not completely remote, as we know from Bede, because various kind of um, upper class folk sent their um, uh, daughters or, or or sons into 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 the care of the Picts when there was a lot of wars going on between the kingdoms, but. Um, I, I just felt that not enough was known about them, you know, and mm. the sculpture on its own is attractive enough to make you wonder about them. You know, really superb artists about which all we have is rumours, mm -hmm. strange rumours. <laughs> Their strange yeah. behaviours often happens to people who aren't known, known very well. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Picts are Britons. They're, they're just another lot of Britons that, that live in Britain. Um, mm -hmm. Their, their distinction was that they never really got conquered by the Romans. Romans right. basically okay. gave up. It was just too difficult. <laughs> they were always getting into the uh, into the Caledonian forests and being um, ambushed and and so on. Have you have you read? Um, well, actually, there's a good film as well about the um, Eagle of the Ninth. 
you know, the, the Roman uh, Ninth Legion went up to um, teach the Picts a lesson and completely disappeared. I think I've actually seen that movie. There was a, um, there was a, there was a movie. I'm trying to remember who was in it. Um, isn't it called something with the eagle or something like that? Is, yeah, or is it just eagle called of Eagle? Eagle of the Nights. It's called. And he, yes. he spent the film looking for this eagle. Yes, yes, and, exactly. And, and trying to get it to, to really to satisfy everybody that his father was a hero rather than a coward. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, he does this amazing last stand in the middle of a river holding. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's six of them, all the legionnaires that survived. And, mm -hmm. and him, whose name I can't remember what the actor's name, but he, he defends the eagle and against about 400 picks and slaughters a lot of them mm -hmm. with dexterous sword work. <laughs> Extremely dexterous, I think we can say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we must not digress. Otherwise, we'll never even get to Port Mahomet. No, so, I, I, I was going to actually just say that um, me and Sarah was, were up in that region um, in January, I think it was. Um, and I had the pleasure of seeing a few of the stones. We couldn't see all of them because, unfortunately, Dunrobin Castle, the grounds were closed at the time. I didn't realise... I, I, I didn't realize that there was a, a seasonal thing. I assumed they would be open all year, but apparently it only opens kind of in the spring through through autumn time. So we saw the ones that were were outside and accessible. So there's the one that's in the glass cabin. And I, um, and then I think there's one that was a remake and then one inside a church. So I managed to see a couple of them and they are pretty, pretty remarkable. They're, um, they say that it's, it takes an extreme craftsmanship to, to make them they're not i couldn't believe how the detail on them when i actually saw them i was quite expecting them to be to be fairly simple um but no i was i was wrong and ple well, pleasantly the, surprised the, first phase is, the sixth century ones are, are fairly simple because they're incised and later on they're in low relief so they're, they're quite they're quite uh, uh they're, they're very well made but the thing is that the, the the symbolism is quite complicated you know it's really difficult to decode Mm -hmm. And even when you get the um, the later sculpture, you know they they do pretty pretty original things like um, uh, you know King David and and um, and so on 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 their stones. So yeah, I think they are fantastic and not very well known. Uh, but the people who know them are very passionate about them. So Pictish Art Society, for example, is a a really passionate group of enthusiasts. Anyway, to, to get back to the story, yeah. I, was, I was in Port Mahomet being shown round and, and I could see these sculptures were 8th century and one of them was, had got Latin on. Uh, but also looking, looking at the land, it, it was pretty obvious that there was um, uh, a filled in valley. And um, that's, a, that's the joy uh, for an archeologist because if the valley's filled in, the chances are that the strata are still there and they haven't been plowed away by the farmers. Uh, whereas on a flat, uh, you know, the, some of these settlements on the flat, particularly on the chalk, it gets ploughed, 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 and there's hardly anything left, just the holes of the post holes. So we were excited about that and did some test excavations to see whether there was um, any strata there. And down, down it went. So it looked pretty, pretty positive. Mm -hmm. Then we did lots of um, survey work because these days you, what we tend to do if you want to get a project going is you do an evaluation. Ours was paid by the Highland Council. Uh, we do an evaluation and then that 
gives you an idea of how good the site is. And then you present that to um, some fee paying or grant giving body and say, look, we know enough now to say there's a lot of chances this is going to be a really good sequence. Mm-hmm. And we were helped. At, I'd, I'd tell you a funny story because we we had a lot of gadgetry up there. Uh, we tried radar as well as magnetometry and so on. And um, we were running our, our machine through uh, through these fields. Uh, anyway, the guy who used to um, plough the fields lived just locally in his cottage, retired. Uh, and he'd, he'd come out each morning around about 10 o'clock to have his morning cigarette. And he, he'd, he'd stand there and, and smoke and look at us. And I went and chatted him up one day and he said, um, what are you doing? And so I said, well, you know, in a, in a slightly sort of superior way, these are important scientific uh, <laughs> We're trying to find uh, early buildings. Anyway, it was, it was, this guy was a bit like Dave Allen. There was a long pause and he went, do you want to know where they are? <laughs> I wouldn't mind, actually. If it was, he come with me. So we walked into the middle of the field and he said, dig here, I should. And <laughs> I said, how do you know? He said, well, it's not complicated. Uh, I've been, I've been ploughing this land for the last 40 years. It's a sharp sand. There's only really these places where you hit large round stones. And that's here. That has to be a building. What else could it be? So there we go. So I dug I, that. Uh, I wonder how many interesting people there are like that, who, who nobody ever speaks to, I guess, but just know these things first. on the land. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's actually, um, there, there's a lot of that, stories like that in Denmark, you know, where it's like, oh, over here, the locals have been talking about that there's like a king's wagon that has been like you know lost in a bog and, and then they go digging and they actually find a, 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 a beautifully adorned wagon from you know 1800 years before <laughs> those mm-hmm. kinds of things like it, it's a uh, it's definitely like local local information like that is is very valuable to find new things you know just as just as good as a magnetometer and but in this case also being an area where i i i'd never been before um and, and the, it was really important to um, get people on your side. After all, it's a, you know it's a, it's farmland. They're, they're mm-hmm. going to make a living, and there has to be a very good reason. You can get permission from the landowner, who might even live live in London, but when it comes to the permission you actually want, it's from the tenant farmer. Um, yeah, and so you you have to cut, you have to make sure you've got them on your side. And we we did find that the, the the port as it's called was very very friendly they were terribly nice to us they gave us enormous feasts and there was lots of drinking so it was a smashing place to be um we i put in a uh, we did the evaluation i put in a bid for the um for the lottery money so remember that the own the um person who had invited me was the one who was trying to get her church restored and um, she had she wanted to raise the money for that and was having trouble getting the grant. So uh, we decided we put in for a lottery grant. And uh, lottery was was a bit more straightforward in those days than it is now. It's become quite quite difficult and competitive. But those days, they were really looking for projects, you know, to to spend the money on. And um, mm-hmm. we put together um, three partners. So. 
the Tarbot Historic Trust was the trust that of local people who, who were going to uh, make the church uh, repaired and restore it. Highland Council, uh, who, whose area we were in, and the University of York. So we all wanted different things. The, um, uh, basically, the Tarbot Historic Trust wanted to restore their church and, and make a car park. Uh, <laughs> Highland Council wanted to um, make a, an area of um, uh, tourist attraction, uh, trying to attract people to the Tarbot Peninsula, which is, you know, it's a 20 mile road leading nowhere, leads to a lighthouse. And so it's quite hard to get people up there. And there was a, there were a few hotels there. They kept getting into trouble financially, not enough people coming and so on. And of course, they don't come in the winter, as you as you found out. It's quite I, short, actually. Up there. I did. It was a, I mean, it was a beautiful drive out there, but you're right that there isn't much between the two points when you when you kind of leave the main oh, roads to, to head in that direction yeah. it's it's pretty much just a, a one little road and that's then that's it well we got we got our our three organizations together and decided that what we'd do is we'd um we dig we dig the site um and then uh we'd get the church restored and then uh we'd put the We'd make the church into a museum and put the, our finds into the museum and that would give it um, a long destiny, a long life. And in fact, it's still going. It's, it, it is a museum. Mm -hmm. It can also function as a church, but it's, a, but it's, a, it's, a, it's still going. It's still getting public. When you think how far, how, they have, how difficult it is to find, it's quite amazing they've kept going and they've done really 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 well i know I, I wish they were open when i went <laughs> that was yeah. that was my destination for driving out there um and we actually we got i mean it, it's lovely to see anyway it's a beautiful area but we we got out and went up to the church and had a little knock on the door and there was nobody there did he, did he wind the handle did you see those posts there's, there's no posts well there's some posts sticking up there and they talk to you. If you wind the hand. Oh, I did. Yes. No, I did. Yeah. I did see them. I, I did. saying something out of that post. Oh, was it you? It is, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we started building the museum almost immediately because uh, obviously the local partners were the ones who wanted that uh, particularly done. And, and we applied to the Heritage Lottery. The Heritage Lottery only give you money if you've got a community uh, benefit. It, it can't just be research. In fact, they did say, we don't really fund research, so uh, we'll leave aside the excavation. I said, well, you can't leave aside the excavation because it's part of the deal. It's part, without the excavation, you don't get a museum. They said, well, we know what your archeologists are like. You know, once you're in there, you'll, we'll never get rid of you. I said, well, you will actually, because <laughs> things have changed a lot in the world of archeology. span and you want to look at an archaeological project now quite differently. It's like building a house. We do an evaluation season. We've done that already. So we know roughly what, what, what's here. And then when we uh, um, look at the program, we make a program which is, has a specific purpose. And our program is uh, to chronicle the, the different phases of this site and use those phases to determine when kingdoms were formed, when uh, the people were converted to Christianity, how they did it, what context they had with um, the rest of Britain and across the sea, if, we, if we're lucky enough, 
and then what happens in the Middle Ages, and then what happens right up to today. So we've got a, a prize sequence here. So this story is a good story, but it's no one has else has done this yet in Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the picks are, are, are really elusive. Everybody's heard of them, but when you when you actually want to get face to face with them, that's a bit hard. Apart from the sculpture, so so they said, "Oh, I see." So you mean you just have a, a program? I said, "Yeah, we have a, we have a, we have a single price, just like building a house, and that's it." So, um, well, it wasn't, of course, but I mean that was, <laughs> that was theory. So I said that they said, "Okay, that's fine." So they gave us. Um, uh, well, they gave us, I think, two and a half million, which of which only a bit was for the dig. The rest of it was for restoring the church and um, starting to make it into something which people wanted to visit, building the car park, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. So we, they started um, uh, getting the ch church. was beautifully designed, by the way. It's, it's, uh, if you get a chance to go there, do, do go in. Um, it's, uh, it's been converted into a museum in a very tasteful way i think and it's got a gallery upstairs things for children all sorts of things it's very nice and we opened this in uh was it 1999 um and uh, prince charles came to open it and oh, wow. uh, he was actually very very good i i didn't um, I, I, to be honest, I chose Billy Connolly as my favourite person to open. <laughs> well, he's he's pretty good at history, you know. I mean, he he's done some nice programs on the history of Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, you didn't tell Prince Charles that, though, did you? No, well, I think <laughs> when he came, actually, I think. That, <laughs> but, yeah. but the point was that the Tarbert Historic Trust was quite certain they wanted Prince Charles for the very good reason that if you get royalty, all the street lamps get mended. Oh, and, really? Yeah, but they, they probably wouldn't do it for Billy, you see. <laughs> so all these things, these are, the, these are the politics of trying to get a project going. But anyway, mm -hmm. we got it going. And uh, Prince Charles came and in helicopter and um, he was very nice and everybody loved it. So that was a great success. And then we got down to the digging. So we dug the area. We couldn't dig the churchyard. I have to explain that because... In Scotland, you can't dig a churchyard without mm. the permission of all the descendants of that oh, okay. the people buried there. That they, they they allocated layers, they called, and these layers um, last forever. So a lot of Scots emigrated, of course, and went to Canada and all sorts of places. Um, very difficult to track down. The thing <laughs> is that um, the Churchyard was, we could map it, okay, because it had the standing stones uh, right up to, well, 20th century. So we, we, the earliest ones were 13th, 14th century. So we could map the way the churchyard had, had expanded. And we were also interested in the environment. You know, we wanted to, to have, a, have a feeling for where our site was. However, let me just tell you, if I can, quickly, and interrupt me if, you, if, if I lose the thread, uh, basically, there are four acts in this drama. Um, the earliest occupation was in the sixth century, sixth into the early seventh century. And we found it firstly in the form of big slabbed tombs. These, these were long kissed burials, or kiss, they call that in Scotland, but they're basically. Um, 
uh, slabs of stone set on edge and a slab going over the top. And then the, the person is laid inside. And mm. they're quite high status. Uh, so we found two little groups of these. Um, of course, everything is found backwards in uh, archaeology, but, but I'm going to tell you the story um, in real time, so to speak, rather than uh, start from today and, and, and deal yeah. down with you. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, so the earliest phase is this um, phase, which is looks like being quite aristocratic. Um, okay. uh, don't They didn't have a church or anything like that. Uh, in fact, they they did have a settlement and the settlement part that we in our area was um uh, uh just at the edge of a marshy um uh, a place where a stream was coming down so they had fresh water supply mm-hmm. uh, and they were making things they were uh, they had a gilt bronze disc um, and that gilt bronze disc was um had animal ornament on it that was an exciting find mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I realized that that one was rather similar to our mound 17 gilt bronze disc in other words it's a disc from a bridle and then we uh, I noticed another one was another one at Dunad another one at market motive mark so we were right on the on the right north end of Britain Sutton who was on the south end of Britain uh, Dunad was on the west of Britain. Motormark was uh, around Solway Firth. Amazing. And they're all mm-hmm. having the same kind of bridal. So it seemed as though in the 6th to early 7th century, there was a kind of uh, equestrian class occupying <laughs> these different small settlements. And if you go to the borders or go to Wales, you'll find loads of these small settlements on tops of hills. Um and very often they have a, a stone with them, a, a, some kind of inscription. In the West, they're already Christian, so they've got Christian inscriptions and so on. So this is like Britain's heroic age, uh, which we contacted. And it, it, it helped a lot because it said, ah, so the Picts really are Britons. And that's exactly what we were hoping mm-hmm. they would show themselves to be. Would, would, because I obviously this is the first, the first thing you said, there wasn't a church there, it was just, these these burials um so would the church then be put there because this is a significant spot because of these two two burials or is it just a coincidence that church is put there it's 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 some it's not a coincidence but it's not it's not logical either i mean basically the 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 tarbot peninsula has got clusters of burials all the way around it so it's like a an island and quite often in um, the West Coast as well, in, uh, in of Scotland, you get islands of the dead, so islands where people are buried. Um, and this is like Port Mahomet had burials all around, and it had them since the Bronze Age, because there were Bronze Age burials around there as well. Mm-hmm. However, what seems to have happened here is uh, there was uh, a bit of a hiatus, not very long, but uh, there, there, was a, there was a time when nothing much was happening. And then there was a big landscaping exercise. And what the, what the landscapers did was to um, build a road uh, which ran from the top of the hill above the beach uh, down to what had been a wet patch. Uh, but that turned into a pond, a big pool. 
um, and they they built um, retaining walls. Uh, the road, by the way, was was uh, metal. It was it was sort of rammed, uh, well slabs really, slabs of schist that had been put in the road. So quite quite a novelty for Iron Age. Wow! And then uh, they built um, a church, and then they built a strange building which was uh, round at one end and and sort of square at the other. It's like a like a sporran in plan. Um, really, it's really interesting building uh, with big post holes and then uh, a porch. And the porch showed us that this building must have been made of turf. So the buildings, the posts themselves were set at intervals and the building was clad in turf. Hmm. And in that building, people were working metal. And then... Isn't, isn't there a shape like that on one of the, the picture stones? Almost... I don't know if this is offensive by saying it looks like a Cornish pasty kind of upside down. I'm sure that's on, on one of the, is that on one of the pictures? It's like a, a semicircle around the top and then it comes in like flat. Oh, your symbol, you mean? Is that what it is? Yeah, there's a symbol. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. One, I one of those is a comb. Um, I'm just trying to think what the one you're thinking of, but there is, there is a mirror and comb is a very common symbol. Oh, okay. A pair of symbols, in fact, you can yeah. see in the Pictish symbolic language. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was another of these buildings, uh, also um, of turf, and in there, uh, we were very puzzled as to what they were doing in there. They they had um, they had bones sharpened at one end, and they they were all put into a row. Um, and then there was a trough, stone-lined trough, some description. Well, it was a sort of rectangular stone-lined trough. Uh, there were some big stones that, that stood about kind of chest high. And um, there were lots and lots and lots of white pebbles. <laughs> so my very clever co-director looked at this and uh, she said, well, the other building, is they're definitely making metalwork, beautiful metalwork, uh, mm-hmm. little bits of enamel and things we were finding, glass and so on. They said, in this one, they're doing something which needs a trough and white pebbles and bones. <laughs> so I said, yes. And she said, oh, well, <laughs> it's they're making vellum. Well, that was an amazing piece of intuition. And she went off to Milton Mowbray, where they still make vellum, and said, we think we've got a vellum making workshop um, wow. because we've got a trough, which means that they've got something that they could uh, wash the skins in. Um, and we've also got, a, there was a lot of ash in this, uh, this trough. And this ash was uh, from uh, um, shells, seashells. In other mm-hmm. words, they'd gotten astringent. They didn't, they didn't have uh, what they have in the Mediterranean. So they used the seashells and burnt them, and that gave the alkali to make the astringent. And then oh, wow. they wanted to stretch them. And um, at this point, uh, Cecily found a very diagnostic knife, which was like a, a curved, had a curved blade and a, and a single uh, a sort of handle coming up like that. Now, these mm-hmm. are made. To wait, wait. Well, they made to de-hair leather. Sorry, 
so, so, so it's like it, it, it's a curved blade and then the the handle is in the middle yeah yeah and they use them to they're, they're very characteristic of of treating skin so you, you scrape with this mm -hmm. the curved blade pushes the skin down so that it keeps in contact with skin. yeah like and you can oh it's, it's it's just interesting because it sounds almost like the ulu uh, um the inuit ulu uh, that they use for the same purposes um to clean skin yeah yeah uh anyway the the um the bones were then a bit of a mystery uh but when you've got the skins you've cleaned them you then have to put them on a stretch them on a frame <laughs> and these these frames um didn't exist because they were made of wood so they, mm -hmm. they disappeared uh, but the bone pegs were there and basically you you peg the leather um uh, to the frame so that it's uh, stretched tight but you but you mustn't put a hole through it because if you do that the hole will get bigger and bigger as you stretch it with a leather thong so what do you do well uh, Cecily uh, surmised and confirmed that what you do is you take the corner of the leather you wrap it around a little pebble and then you lash it and then tie it to the frame so that when you tighten it up um, it doesn't tear. Basically, you've got something like a drum skin, uh, really, really tight. And then you scrape it, scrape it, scrape it, make it tight and put more uh, astringent on it and punts, I think it's called, and make that into a smooth writing surface. So that was an amazing piece of detective work. And there was a special building for doing it with its um, a trough next door and, and this sort of pedestal, which they could work the leather on and so mm -hmm. on. It's obviously so very making... important to make it. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, they, they we, we had a little bit of a problem trying to decide that it was really vellum rather than just leather working. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was, uh, I think it was sort of deduced really because of the um, young animals that were there being uh, used um, and also uh, uh, the, the, the sort of finery of the, of the, of the knives, it, it just looked a bit special, but I, I can't say we ever found, we didn't actually find a, a nice codex in the pond, which would have been handy. <laughs> that's unfortunate. <laughs> would, have proved, would have proved the point. Um, so that's making vellum, and then the metalworking um, included uh, the kind of things that you see on the Ardar chalice. They're little like little bosses, um, with, en with enamel on. And uh, so the plot was thickening, uh, basically towards the identification of a monastery. And the mm -hmm. third industry there was sculpture. And of course, we didn't really know about the sculpture until the Viking raid, because when the Vikings raided, they, they smashed all this sculpture up with a sledgehammer or something and, and used it to pave a road. So that we were finding these bits of sculpture, but it was in the wrong phase, you see what I mean? But when oh, it when right. got back into phase, we realized that this is all part of the same monastery. The monastic package was carving, stone carving, including a Latin inscription, but also other kinds of mixed Pictish imagery with Christian imagery. And then making church vessels, presumably, from this metal workers uh, shop and then making vellum. So um, it's as though the monastic package was too big just for one monastery, 
but what these monasteries do is you set up somewhere in a new place, and then they bud off into daughter mm -hmm. houses and you gradually expand the reach of Christianity like that. So we were pretty thrilled by this time because we thought, mm, well, this looks pretty like real Christians. And all the rumors about the Picts, um, uh, you know, um, never wearing any clothes and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of ridiculous in Scotland. <laughs> it's not a good place to be a nudist. That's absolutely <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> not. Not right out there as well by the sea. <laughs> what, what was brilliant was not only was this, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, brought them into the mainstream of the development of Britain, but it was actually better than anything Britain had got because um, for one reason and another, monastic sites tend to be um, remembered and popular and ours wasn't. Well, it was actually because it became a parish church, you know, later on. But mm -hmm. but it's not like, uh, you know, as at Westminster, it's not it's not like uh, Lindisfarne or any of those. Although Lindisfarne is deserted now, no one's forgotten it. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, all, all those places have sort of stayed famous and have either been developed or or been uh, development has been forbidden. Mm -hmm. So we were dead lucky to find something that we could not know what it was to start with, but had a suspicion. And then out the monastery. So the monastery was first a sort of um, dates we could, it probably wasn't earlier than 680. So the end of the seventh century. So it's basically in the same wave of monasticism, which gave us Jarrow, Monk Wearmouth, Hartlepool, uh, all, all these monasteries that appear in Bede. They're all of that period. And there's a massive monastic movement which starts in Northumbria and spreads north and spreads west, um, which uh, it, it, we, we were inspired by Port Mahomet to realise that this is, was a very, very significant moment. It Maybe just... it's, it's obviously a long way north, so I guess you would assume that there must be places on the way, like you said earlier about how it kind of starts and spreads. Um so for it to get to Port Mahomet, you would assume, I guess, there's would there be monasteries all the way up? Um, I think it's, um, you have to think um, boats, really. Okay, so it would. that's why I was wondering whether it would have come around by sea or come up through the land. Distributions, yeah, the, the distributions of the ones we know tend to be on the water. Right, and, okay. And even getting to Ireland, uh, you know, you've got the great, great glen, you can get, you can... Get there if you've got, especially if you're if your Irish sea type boats or skin boats, you can carry them quite easily. So, you know, you 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 come into the Loch Ness system, and you end up in the Inver, um, Inverness. I'm I'm pretty sure that was the main form of transport, especially as it's really hilly up there, Highlands. Mm -hmm. So, if you plot the Pictish stones. The, the first type, the incised type, with just symbols on of no crosses, they they tend to be in up country, and basically they tend to occupy the place where uh, the sort of sown meets the wild part of the mountain. Mm -hmm. So they're telling you that you've arrived at somebody's estate, uh, but the ones with crosses on seem to be looking out to sea, 
and mm-hmm. telling people who are coming by boat that this is what you're looking for. This is your port of port. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's that's the one that I remember seeing was the the one. It, it's in like a glass case now, I guess, well, to stop shandy. it. That yeah, yeah, that one obviously has a big cross on it, and then on the other side, it has the the kind of Pictish symbols. It does, and it has the amazing sixty-four spiral explosion. Yes. That is an extraordinary piece of art. It's, it's, it's beautiful, and I wish I could have like organized to get inside the glass case and get up close and have a have a good look because it's it's remarkable that it, of where it is. Me and Sarah drove out to it, and it's just this huge, ornately carved stone just stood yeah. there in the middle of nowhere, seemingly for no apparent reason, apart from that it is looking out to the sea. That's right, and uh, in fact, Port Mahomet. Sorry, the the Tarbuk Peninsula has got these four sites on it. Um, there's, there's Shandwick, and and then there is um, Nig. And Nig looks the other way; it looks into the Cromarty Firth. Mm-hmm. And Port Mahomet looks into um, the Murray Firth. Well, it looks across to uh, to um, Sutherland. Um, and and those those places are all looking out to sea. So it's, if Port Mahomet was a, sorry, if uh, Tarn Peninsula was an island, these would be the points of entry that people would, would recognise. And, and these crosses, they made big cross slabs in the pits. Um, later artists made these big cross slabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the Vikings came, and they seem to have come early 9th century, so... They've already raided Lindisfarne in 793, but here they're coming 800, 810, something like that. Um, East Coast Monastery, just what they're looking for. And uh, so the Vikings, um, I think uh, it it isn't they didn't like Christianity because they converted quite quickly, especially in Yorkshire. Um, They didn't like monasticism. They did aim for the monasteries, but monasticism was... um, something they thought was politically unacceptable. It's a bit like a Tory looking at socialism, you know, it's not, it's not healthy. In some <laughs> way. Whereas uh, the monastic movement thought that this was the only way to live where uh, you, you invested in the power of the almighty and did lots of singing and so on. Um, but you also tried to make the, kings subservient uh, to the monastic idea That's so this is this is an interesting conversation because um i don't know if you're familiar with uh, the uh, i think his first name is johan Müller uh yeah. theory right about uh the viking raids on especially on northern uh, like the, the the northern uh, british area uh, Scotland and, and and Northern England uh, being in some ways motivated by the conversion to Christianity in that region. Um, his original claim, um, which I think is a little too, it, it's a little too much of a neat package to, to be acceptable, but uh, his original claim is that there was a long-standing uh, interaction between um, the Picts for instance, um, uh, and uh, the Scandinavians, particularly in Norway. And these uh, interactions and trade 
collapsed when they converted to Christianity. And so the Viking raids are a response to that. Um, that's, his, that's his claim, I think sort that, of roughly. That's a, step, that's a step too far because we don't have the evidence for trade yeah. with Norway at that point. And in fact, even um, you know, when the, uh, the Norse came to, to Port Marmot, uh, they left precious little of the kind of material culture that we have in um, York, masses and masses of stuff there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I, I don't think it's trade, but I, th I think people shouldn't underestimate um, the corrosive power of ideology, you know, any sort of ideology, which uh, sort of sweeps across people um, like fire. And they're all there. They all suddenly decide that these other people are very dangerous or they're not good for us or or something mm -hmm. but if you want a more pragmatic reason um the monasteries were very rich you know i mean mm -hmm. the, the our monasteries miles from anywhere uh, but that part of the world that time was never as rich again and it's never been as rich before you know it was mm -hmm. an amazing amount of investment because they made um uh, they encouraged people to believe that the most important thing was salvation and um, uh, uh, there was a writer whose name I can't remember now, it was a very good um, uh, article he wrote called The Salvation Industry which explains how early monasteries worked. Basically mm -hmm. you, know, you paid them for salvation and they got extremely wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that the Port Mahomet Monastery was set up in a way that is actually documented by Bede as well. In other words, the people who'd been living there already, buried in those smart kissed burials, they must have given the land. They probably had other land, but they gave the land as a as a monastic site, and it was perfect because it was above the beach that you could land on, and so on. So mm -hmm. I, I, that and that and that all those other those kiss burials then disappeared and a completely new set of burials came with the with the monastery and, a, and a, they had um stones placed either side of the head like that instead of being mm -hmm. flabby stones and two of them we we did um various kinds of uh, stable isotope analysis uh two of those people were from scandinavia so you don't you don't need to have a trade um that goes wrong i mean you, it'd be good if, it, if if there had been one if we got evidence for it but you do need to have um a reason for um destroying the monastic idea and substituting um what you might call i don't know single male domination or something i mean but the vikings were very keen on um uh you know, family landowning with a with a, a fighter at its head. This is what it did in Yorkshire. They converted the monasteries of Yorkshire and, and removed them altogether. And instead of that, you've got loads of private churches all over East Riding. And uh, they also had sculpture and all the rest of it. I, I, you know, it was another another way of doing things, but it was a very different way. So I think mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I've done a book. Okay. I'm, I'm getting excited about this, <laughs> this theory. <laughs> so so what, what you're essentially proposing here is that there is a, an ideological difference that ha doesn't have anything to do with, necessarily have anything to do with 
uh, heathen versus Christian, but but more uh, how do you organize um, your land ownership, for instance? So yeah. uh, something that we see from all over Scandinavia and particularly in Iceland is that yeah. uh, churches are privately owned. Um, in the in the beginning, when when Christianity uh, emerges in in the Danish area, you have the same thing. You have privately owned churches, and then at some point, we have the Catholic Church ceasing uh, in some way or other the uh, the ownership of of of, uh, of the church institutions. So what we have essentially is sort of like a, a Viking idea, a Scandinavian idea of how you. Uh, manage churches and church land as opposed to a the, the, the established catholic idea and 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 governance in general yes no i i i like this perspective i think that's actually very reasonable i did uh, i did this book on formative britain um which is uh it's, it's rather it's rather large and no normal human wants to read it because it's far too big <laughs> But it, 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 if you go to just the last chapter, <laughs> then, then you'll get the theme. So it, it basically goes a bit like this, that there are three driving forces in the first millennium. Um, the first one is uh, what you might call kingship or single male leadership of some description, uh, where you put your faith in that person and you, and you become that part of that person's following. And this is expressed in archaeological terms by small settlements, uh, very often on high places, and uh, carved stones with inscriptions on. So you get them in Cornwall, Wales, uh, the borderlands um, west of um, Britain, and in the east of Britain, they're, they're the symbol stones. That's their way of saying this is, this is our land. And they're placed at the front of the estates. Uh, as you come over the mountain and find them. So that, that's, that's one tendency, and it, it's very clear in the early period. The second tendency is to put your faith in spirituality of some kind. Um, I think Christian monasticism is a, quite an extreme form of spirituality because uh, it, it was originally invented in the Mediterranean uh, because the uh, Christian movement was trying to get out of imperial control and get out of imperial control and into uh, by trying to trumpet by saying we have a much more important emperor uh, and incidentally you won't be able to assassinate him either um, because he's up there that developed uh, you know in places like Monte Cassino and so on came north and it was embraced by the northern British particularly and I, I don't know why that was but the English didn't like it and I've been having a sort of various discussions with people about this because in my book, I'm saying that the English didn't actually have monasteries. Um, and although Bede thought he was English and he was in a monastery, they're really all in Northumbria at that stage. And they don't, they don't come south till later. When they do come south, they come to places which are I don't know much where there are churches they're much more like the private churches uh, idea mm. and then the third um, uh, imperative is wealth so the vikings are quite typical of this type of governance where in individual families 
equal to each other. So they're not actually that interested in kings, the Vikings. They're, they're interested in um, uh, family power. Mm -hmm. And uh, they like to get land and build their own church, put their own, as you were saying, put their own cross in there. And those crosses um, are really rather rather a giveaway. Because if you go to somewhere like Middleton or, or what's it called, Nunbonholm, um, most crosses have a bit, bit of the Bible um, and uh, image of a saint but these have an image of the landowner and he's sitting there on a chair <laughs> sculpted <laughs> on the cross you know with his sword so so he's saying yeah this is okay that's god's uh, area and this is my area and and um so now you know <laughs> yeah no it makes it that makes a lot of sense we've seen these ideas expressed in various imagery in scandinavia too um i think i need someone also... to do an image of me like that i think <laughs> sat, sat in this chair right here i think <laughs> perfect and this there's also you know there's also something about the utility of of monasteries um in a it i think it we can safely say that it's a it's a good place to put your bastard children um, and 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 other people yet that that you want to get rid of in a, in in the established Christian cultures in the Mediterranean, right? Um, but you don't have those same issues in Scandinavia. Um, a, a good example is is just how many uh, children of of priests and bishops in Iceland who are inheriting property. Yeah. <laughs> like they they were not they were not particularly concerned with uh, the celibacy thing. And in the same way, we don't see in the in the early uh, laws that much of concern about uh, such things as adultery and so on. So, so you have a different culture in Scandinavia, and the Scandinavians might have essentially just looked at these monasteries and been like, "What are they good for anyway? Except for you know, they're raiding wealth. <laughs> they're tying up wealth, and yeah, it's being taken out of the marketplace. So that if you're yeah. interested in creating wealth." then monasteries aren't very good. It's a good way of getting rid of any wealth, but it doesn't actually help very much. Without the Vikings, they were already beginning to fade in the ninth century because the, uh, what, the things they invented were too useful. So one a good example of this is the water mill. So the water mills are always present in the Irish monasteries. Uh, we thought we ought to have one at Port Mahomet, but we, we couldn't actually find it. We found we found the mill pond, but I think the mill itself was under the road. I think that was his problem. But these things are really useful and they set themselves up. And so you wanted your your grain ground and the monastery took a toll and ground it for you. So mm. the intelligent um, aristocrat would see that uh, it'd be rather better if we ran this and so uh, you know, one of the first people to, to have one was um, uh, in Tamworth. Offa's Palace had a, had a water mill. That's one of the few that have been found. So, you know, they're capturing some of the good, the good technology that came with the monasteries, but they don't really want the other bit. They don't, they don't, they don't believe it, I suppose. That's the, that's the problem. But they don't believe they'll go to hell uh, unless they pay... Uh, for the salvation you know I think I think mm. that's the and of course that meant for the next thousand years one long big argument between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church mm -hmm. so 
so that's why I think this, that's why I call it a formative period, because I really don't believe it was a dark age. I really don't believe it was particularly irrelevant. In fact, I would say that's where European politics was you know, really invented. I think that's where they tried out all these different ways of living. Absolutely. And make up their minds about them. It's still yeah. No, I, I, I agree a lot. Uh, uh, calling it the Dark Age is, uh, is uh, you, know, you know, an affront to what it actually was. It was a, it was a very innovative uh, period in European history. And one thing that's interesting too to see when it comes to this idea of like, what, how do you pay uh, to get into heaven in yeah. in the early Christian period in Scandinavia? Um, quite often, it's building a bridge. That's what we're seeing, especially in the Swedish area, but we also see it a bit in the Danish area. Um, there's some the the church is for some reason it might be the church and whoever rules a certain plot of land that are uh, pushing the idea of like better infrastructure. So you see a lot of bridge building in Sweden in particular, uh, along with then putting up a runestone that says, uh, I, I own this land and I built this bridge and I am Christian. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, they do have crosses, those ones, but, but you know, I think the, the, there's a feeling it starts a bit earlier than that. When um, the famous um, uh, inscription on, on, on the runestone uh, says something like, um, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I'm celebrating my daughter, the handy girl of such and such a valley, uh, who had the, the responsibility for maintaining the road and the bridge. You know, that, that's an extraordinary uh, revelation. And if, if only because they're women, but you know, that's uh, in that period, that's, that's quite something. Mm -hmm. so I think there was, there was a lot of um, really interesting, um, what should I say, sort of benefits coming from the argument that was happening in Sweden between different kinds of governance. And they, they didn't seem to cope, they didn't plump for kingship. They didn't seem to be particularly keen on kingship. If you look at the Vendel and Valsiada burials, I mean, the, the Swede won't say, oh, they're burials of kings or even aristocrats. You know, they're just wealthy farmers and uh, so yeah it's very interesting the Swedish case and so if we took a sort of snapshot of the 8th century in, in northwest Europe oh my god it's diverse because everybody's mm -hmm. trying different things and they don't yet have to dominate each other mm -hmm. no, that's, and that's that that also changes depending on the landscape there are some areas that are easier to, to govern uh, by a dynasty, right? Or, or an emerging dynasty. Uh, the Danish area is a good example of that. It, it does look like the, the Danish area uh, receives sort of more of like a steep hierarchy earlier yeah. than you get in Norway, for instance, and farther north in Sweden. It also is evident in the vocabulary. There are several words for what we today would just call a king. Uh, there's the word konungur, which means king. That word uh, literally uh, signals uh, inherited uh, position, um, as opposed to drot, which means uh, warlord or something like that. Somebody who, who, who you know, marches with the army, um, which was an, another very early term for, for 
what we could otherwise translate to king. So it's it's very evident that, that, that there are multiple forms of governance happening in Scandinavia and at different times and in different locations, depending on, you know, a bunch of variables, really. It's actually quite fascinating. Yeah. Well, the Vikings came to Port Mahomet, of course. I mean, they, they came in um, 810, and this was not a, a, ra- a raid that was in the history book. So uh, we had to work quite hard to prove it because... The natural tendency of archaeologists is to be hugely skeptical about other archaeologists, <laughs> and um, especially <laughs> they're claiming something like a Viking raid. What we had, though, was um, the, the the vellum workshop burnt down, and all, all the areas around it burnt down. So it had been very, very hot, and so on. So it was a really fierce fire. Um, and then uh, there was the breaking up of the sculpture. So the sculpture had been broken up with a hammer. Um, that included um, lots of different kinds of monument, which were no longer there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the monuments that were still in one piece had been felled. Uh, so they were the ones around the church, basically. Um, but otherwise, the rest of them be. The pond was decommissioned. Uh, it was just blocked up with mud and they didn't bother with it. They obviously weren't interested in the mill still. Um, but um, uh, they did continue working there. And the interesting thing is that they moved the metal workshop from the building where it was before. And they, they moved it to where the vellum workers had been. And they were working with crucibles and open hearths and things like that. But they weren't making... Um, chalices and and thurbles and things like that mm. anymore. They, they were making uh, belt buckles and um, uh, basically secular apparatus. So it okay. was like and it's a, exactly the same technique. So it's like the same people had decided that discretion was the better part of valor and um, mm. said, "Okay, well we, I, I, I don't kill me. Um, I, I'm not. I'm." I'm shedding my monkish garb now, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm happy to go on being a metal worker. Okay. And you can see that Vikings are not stupid. I mean, they know that metal workers are pretty valuable people and mm-hmm. can make swords and all sorts of other things. So they start, and that metal working um, tradition, if you like, up, uh, up near the beach, that continued on uh, through the Middle Ages. So, there was a bit of a hiatus. There was about there was about a hundred years where nothing much happened after this metalworking phase. Uh, during that time, Macbeth was leading the people of um, the Murray Firth against various uh, Norse attempts to break through. So Norse wanted to break through the Great Glen so that they could connect up with the Isles, which uh, the Western Isles, which they were occupying. Um, and Macbeth is um, has terrible, you know, he has a really bad press. I think part, partly because of Shakespeare, really. I mean, <laughs> a guy he couldn't do anything right, but he practiced. He was he was probably as good as Alfred was against the Danes. Macbeth against the the Norse was pretty effective, mm-hmm. and he was a Scot rather than a Pict. The Picts really lost out in this clash of giants because the Scots from the West took on the Vikings and defeated them, or took on the Norse and defeated them in the Murray Firth area. 
and um, there was penetration was quite slight. I mean, compared with something like the Danes in Yorkshire, there there was a thing at Dingle and so on, but um, there's nothing like the same amount of um, Norse uh, material culture in that part as, as as you'd expect. So I think they pretty well gave up in the end and thought, oh well, fine, Murray's going to go on resisting us. So they went round um, Shetland, Orkney, and then the Hebrides, and and then and then down joining up with the, the Lancashire. You know, I, I think they, even though the first land is is Firth is just a fjord, so it is attractive to the Scandinavians. Mm-hmm. They didn't seem to have penetrated, and in Aberdeenshire, you know, kept very Viking-free, so to speak. So I think it was in, in a very interesting period. Um, and, and Macbeth, as I say, I think he's an unsung hero in many ways. He, <laughs> he did a lot of good defending. Yeah. Oh. Before before we wrap up, I just wanted to pull back to the the destruction of the, the statues. Because am I, am I right in thinking that was quite unusual behaviour in a, in a raid? Because obviously it seems very deliberate to destroy... I guess iconography statues rather than just stealing wealth, kind of going out of your way to to destroy things. I don't know whether it's unusual. I, I think the problem with Port Mahomok is that it wasn't a documented monastery. And the documented monasteries um, really, and, and most of them survived in some way or another. Um, Port Mahomok had a long period of 100 years when not much happened there. And then when David I came to the throne, he was very influenced by a Roman Catholicism and uh, wanted to sort of join mainstream Europe in this. So he created a parish system, the, the whole box of tricks really for that the, the, the Catholics had, including new monasteries and so on. They did know that Port Mahomet was the port of St. Coleman, so they knew it. And they went and plonked their church on what and I believe was the, uh, the sort of ruin of the eighth century church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't continuity. It was just the highest point at Port Marmok uh, has got a building on it. That's a church and people have been buried around it. And now we're going to keep that going. So they put a 12th, okay. 12th century church on top of that. And and um, dedicated it to St. Coleman. So I, I think they probably knew that there had been something there, but hadn't been there for a bit, and no one mm-hmm. quite remembered it. On the other hand, interesting. I'll tell you just a final anecdote. In in the final in the, in the medieval period, uh, the church goes on uh, being used for burial, but they're now burying more um, in the church, like they did with the the monastery uh, with the monks. Um, and then outside the church, they put these big slabs, or, or um, you know, big they're the sort of big slabs with a with a set of initials, a Munro or a Mackenzie, and and a sword in outline. You can probably imagine the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Th- those were the rich people that they were being uh, celebrated there. But in general, the 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 church was. Uh, uh, it was a scene of a battle between the Rosses and the uh, and the Mackenzies. So, Rosses are sort of Picts, and the Mackenzies are sort of Scots from the west coast. So, in our 
an analysis of the uh, stable isotopes, this, this was the period in which Westerners came in large quantities. It wasn't the ninth century, it was more like the 15th. Um, and so they were, they were kind of late into this area, but then it became Mackenzie land in a, in a big way. So mm -hmm. I think that um, make, makes it quite interesting, but we had a Mackenzie who was the, um, the uh, priest there and um, he was he was buried in in the in the church, and uh, we we um, excavated his his grave, and it was a, a fairly extraordinary thing. We also excavated the graves in the church because they had to be removed anyway for them to make the museum, and uh, right in front of the steps leading down to the crypt, there was a burial of a man um, uh, without a head. But um, he had four skulls, two placed each side of him. And then another person with a head had been placed on top of him. <laughs> so this made, this made the papers. They were like, oh, wow, what's going on here then? There's a Pictish head cult or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a cult. It's yeah. always a cult, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I said a church, why not? The pics are well, are well and gone now, but, but this... What we did was um, we went to um, David Wright, you know, Destroyed everything in um, Harvard, and uh, he said, "I'm interested in this. I'll, I'll do the, the DNA for you." So we did the DNA and all these skulls, and uh, as well as the standard operation, you know, standard archaeology procedure. So anyway, all these guys were related except one. So all these heads, they weren't superseding each other. They were simply um, being allowed into the tomb, which was occupying the, the pole position in the church, dead opposite the steps leading down to the relics oh. uh, in the crypt. So uh, the, the DNA uh, was, was really quite complicated, but basically there was brothers, uncles, uh, uh, nieces, uh, and um, there was just this one other skull. And this one other skull had a completely different carbon date to the others. It came from the eighth century. It was a Pictish skull. Uh, it had either been curated or they dug it up when they were digging their cemetery and thought, um, well, we seem to be missing one of these people that this, this, this one will do. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it was an extraordinary thing. It wasn't, it wasn't an outlandish cult. It was a family celebrating itself. And in, mm. a, in a time in the 15th century where there were a lot of clan wars going on, it was important mm -hmm. for them. So there were lots of little stories at Port Mahomet like that. It was really a, a smashing place. Oh, wow. Sounds it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us. I, I just tried to grab your book and then destroyed my little <laughs> shelf and threw drinks on the floor <laughs> trying to do it. I'm just going to grab it. Well, <laughs> I've, got, I've got some cleaning up to do after this because I'm... <laughs> Throwing, throwing everything everywhere. Um, but no, I wanted to grab it because I wanted to hopefully tell people to, to go and buy it. Um, so it's your book, Paul Mahomet, Monastery of the Picts, which I've got here, which I'm going to read after this. Um, yeah, everyone just go and grab that book because uh, this is the second time you've been on and it's always so much fun just to sit here. I think I say the least in your episodes than anybody else's. Because I get to just sit here and listen to you, to you speak, too. and 
<laughs> and it, it, it's fascinating. I just get lost listening to you tell your stories. Um, and I, yeah, I really enjoy it. You're welcome back anytime we can coax you in to speak about things. Well, I enjoy it too. Thanks very much. Ask me back in a few months when, when our ship is a bit further on and I'll tell you about the building of the Sutton Who ship. Oh, absolutely. That sounds amazing. Yes. 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 <laughs> we'll talk again. Okay. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so very much. much, Brian. It's an absolute Take pleasure. Care, Take care, see you later. See you. What a lovely guy. Every yeah. time. he He's just the grandfather I wish I had. <laughs> uh, fuck, I, I've wrecked my studio. I've thrown <laughs> water everywhere, coffee. My dear skull's fallen over. It's, it's a nightmare. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um, so if you enjoy the show, please sign up to Patreon to help me fix my studio because it's fucked now. <laughs> now, if you if you enjoy the show, please, if you can, pop over to the Patreon uh, for the price of which you're buying us one of us a cup of coffee. The second tier up is like buying both of us a coffee um, a month, and you get to jump in and watch the episodes live, or you get a bonus episode. Um, all, we try to do it every week. Unfortunately, life sometimes come up as a limitation having a, a young baby. But we try and get them as much as possible. There's also a back catalogue you can listen to of Q&A, Q&A episodes and story time episodes with Jonas Lorenzen. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah, it, it really does help us out, keeps us going, helps us grow the, the production and, and get better. If you go back and listen to episode one compared to now, I, I hope that we're worlds apart. Um, somebody actually messaged me earlier and said, oh, I, you know, I love the podcast. I started from the beginning. And I, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you had to get through those first 20 episodes of us not having a fucking clue what we were doing. Bumbling around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, let's, should we get out, get out of here? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining right. us today, everybody. And enjoy the rest of your day.